There's a lie that's been spread through the church today. You may have heard it. You may have even been a part in spreading it. It's a lie that it's always wrong or bad to criticize the life of another. Much more to call their behavior sinful. It's a lie and always at all times bad to pass judgment, we're told, on someone else. It's increasingly something that we face in the pressure of our society, the relativism of morality, the, the pressure that we have to accept all kinds of lifestyles, to accept all kinds of, of choices that people make. They are free, they're independent, we're supposed to stay out of their business. And frequently there is employed in this endeavor the misrepresentation of biblical teaching. Even in the church in America, the embracing of the false interpretation of Jesus' words Judge not that you be not judged. Well, advocates of this position and advocates of that interpretation would be shocked at what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage in which Paul has reached a point in the church where he calls them not only to judge, but to even put a man out of the church because of the way he's been living. And he does it with the dramatic phrase calling them to deliver this man to Satan. Let me just read these first five verses of 1 Corinthians 5 for us this morning so you can hear it with your own ears. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit present... With the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That's the main imperative of this passage. It's the main verb of this passage. They're to deliver this man to Satan. It's shocking because what we're really reading when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is really the end of the story. It's really the end of a process, I should say, a process that was intended to involve months, if not sometimes years, of patience and gentleness and pleading and and appealing to someone to turn back from a pathway of sin. It's a process that our Lord Himself laid out in First Corinthians, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18. It's familiar to some of us, new to others, because it's one of the most ignored passages perhaps in all the New Testament, when it comes to the governing of a church. As a matter of fact, in the span of Scripture, you might be surprised to hear that this, Matthew chapter 18, is the first commandment that the Lord Jesus ever gave to the church at large. Many of us are familiar with the second great one, Matthew 28, go into all the world, 
teaching men to, command, to, to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're familiar with that, the Great Commission. And many of us recognize that a church that calls itself a church but has absolutely no intention of following and carrying out Matthew 28 probably has no business to be called a church, right? Well, how about His first commandment? In Matthew 18, when long before He wants the church to turn its focus to those who are outside, He tells them to turn their focus on the inside and to deal specifically with sin that might be occurring in the church, hypocrisy in the church. This is what He says. Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's a very clear step-by-step process, perhaps the clearest you'll find anywhere in Scripture, four basic steps that the Lord lays out here, each of them sort of uh, marked off by an if clause, a conditional clause that's supposed to lead us progressively down a pathway of accountability and a pathway of confrontation and sin. And he lays this out very simply, first of all, in a progressive order of privacy, we might say, beginning with the most private confrontation possible, a one-on-one discussion between you and anyone that you may see around you who's walking in sin. He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This has always been God's design, is that we hold each other accountable in our lives and our professions of faith. So that if someone is walking wayward to the word of God, we go to them as privately as possible and we speak to them. We don't take to the airwaves. We don't go to our social networks. We don't blast it on the blogosphere. We go to them face-to-face, one-on-one, and talk to them. The goal is always restoration because you see in the rest of that verse, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he has a listening spirit, if he has a humble spirit, if he has a receptive spirit, it's not to say he'll be perfect overnight. It's not to say that all the sinful ways will be cured right away. It's to say that he has a receptive spirit to what you have to say. He's humble before the word of God. He understands his need for change and he wants to change. He wants help. This has always been God's design. As a matter of fact, even before this, there's a prior step that Jesus himself says He says, look, before you deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to examine the log that's in your own. In other words, this confrontation really begins with personal confrontation, personal accountability, personal calling to account, but it doesn't stop there. It can't stay there. Despite what all your friends may tell you, despite what most churches practice, God has given us specific guidelines, specific processes to deal in ways of accountability with one another, and that begins with this one-on-one confrontation. It doesn't always end there, though, because you'll notice in verse 16, sometimes people don't listen. Sometimes they won't be 
receptive. Sometimes they won't respond. And if that's the case, Jesus says very specifically, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you're taking now a brother, a sister with you in order to establish that this brother or sister that you're confronting won't listen. To establish that they've hardened their heart. And then, of course, in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, a third step would be to tell it to the gathered church. The assembly. That's what the word ecclesia means. The called out ones, the ones who gather in the name of Christ. When the church gathers on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whenever the church may gather, this is when you stand before them and proclaim this issue. And then fourthly, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Those were, those were despised people in those days. You understand? Gentiles and tax collectors. These were people who were ostracized. They were excluded. They were avoided. And Jesus is saying, this is the way that you are to treat a so-called brother or sister, someone who takes the name of Christ but isn't walking consistent with that profession of faith. Someone who wants to claim to be a part of the church but isn't living as part of it. Someone who has hardened their heart, who has grown cold in their affections to Christ, who has rebelled against God's authority, and who has compromised their testimony, living in hypocrisy. There's an eventual place, he says, where they're to be put out of the church. This is what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what has happened. There was a man in the church at Corinth who had hardened his heart against the Lord. He had hardened his heart against rebuke. He had t- turned a deaf ear and a cold ear to those who were calling him back to faithfulness. He had refused to acknowledge God's word and the standards of righteousness that the Lord demanded. He had grown cold in his affections to Christ. And so Paul says the time to act has come. This isn't anything really out of the ordinary, we might say, for what Paul admonishes elsewhere. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, he writes to them, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according to the tradition you receive from us. You ostracize them. Later on in that chapter, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Titus chapter 3 tells Titus to rebuke a divisive man after two or three warnings and to have nothing to do with him. He says in Romans chapter 16, they're to mark those who cause divisions among the church and have nothing to do with them. Over and over again, Paul was having to oversee and administer this difficult and painful process of dealing with those who are within the body of Christ who want to claim to be believers but don't want to walk as if they're believers. He wants to call the church back to a point of faithfulness 
because so few, even in his own day, were willing to follow the Lord's command in this area. You wonder what Paul would have to say to the 21st century church who long since have forgotten this command of the Lord, have completely ignored it and have tolerated in their midst hypocrisy, duplicitous living, living which mars the testimony of Christ and thwarts the work of evangelism. You see, there's a reason that the Lord gave two commandments to the church and the order in which He gave them. There's a reason that before He ever told us to go out to all the nations and to preach the gospel, there's a reason that He first of all told the church to deal with sin in its midst because He understood that if you have a muted testimony because of hypocritical living among you, you're going to have scant success at reaching those who need the gospel. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God. Contrary to those who would twist uh, 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 Jesus' words in Matthew 7, that we're to never judge, Paul, Peter, and Jesus tell us that judgment must begin with God's people. Now in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there are several principles, truths that sort of help us define what this is all about. What is, this, what is this process of confronting sin about? Why is it in place? What is our responsibility? How are we to proceed in dealing with the sins of others? And who in the world gives us the right to call out the sins of others when we ourselves are sinners? All of those things are dealt with here for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Five truths that I want to point out to you over the next couple of weeks that help us define what church discipline is and what our responsibility is in it. First of all, I want to draw your attention in verses 1 and 2, which really tells us the offense that discipline targets. The offense that discipline targets. The issue is pretty clear here. Paul says there is sexual immorality reported in the church. It's actually reported, he says in verse 1, there's a sexual immorality among you and of kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. In other words, the church had slipped or had slidden so far in its morality, it had compromised so much, it had lowered its standards so far that it had surpassed even the unbelieving community around them. This word that Paul's talking about, sexual immorality, it's the word porneia, Obviously, we get our word pornography from that, but it encompasses all kinds of sexual immorality, and that's what Paul's comparing it to here. You're, you're engaging in a sexual immorality that surpasses all of the other subcategories of sexual immorality that's uh, among us in the pagan community. Specifically, he says, a man has his father's wife. Now, we assume that what Paul's talking about here is his stepmom. He doesn't call them... The, the, the lady is mom, he calls it his father's wife, and so we assume that what he's referring to here is his stepmother. And Paul says he has her. It's the same phrase he uses over in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, when he talks about a married man and a married woman having each other. It's a, it's a word that designates a sustained, immoral relationship. Worse than that, not only is it taking place, but it had circulated widely. 
And Paul wasn't even in the town. And unfortunately, he had heard about it. I mean, which, let's face it, I mean, isn't that normally the way that churches deal with sin? I mean, isn't that normally the way that you, that you encounter sinful things? You don't encounter it with it being dealt with biblically. Normally, what, do, what happens is when someone falls into sin, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's abuse, whether it's embezzlement, whether whatever it might be, malicious intent, whatever it is, normally the way it's dealt with is how? Gossip. People whisper. People tell stories. I mean, in other words, we're not under the illusion that this stuff remains private. We all know about it. We just know about it the wrong kind of way. Well, this is what had happened. Word was leaking out and it had reached even the Apostle Paul, unfortunately, at this point. It was particularly scandalous because it was worse than what was even taking place in the world. Cicero and others let us know that even under Roman law, this kind of activity was forbidden. It was considered incest. And a church member to be guilty of this was considerably despicable and marring to the testimony of the church. Now this sort of highlights for us the kind of sins that we're talking about when we talk about church discipline. In other words, we're not really talking about isolated, one-time, small things. We're not talking about nitpicking someone's particular weaknesses and rushing to judgment to kick them out of the church. What we're talking about are those kinds of sins which are premeditated, planned out, obstinate, unrepentant, and inexcusable. In fact, everywhere you look in the Scripture, when it talks about confronting someone's sin, these are the kind, this is the kind of language you see. You see either continuous, ongoing verbs indicating that there's a pattern of behavior or you see something that's in a participial form. In other words, it characterizes the person. Their life has become characterized by malice, by anger, by deceit, by immorality, by whatever. In fact, one of the most graphic descriptions that you'll ever find related to this issue would be in Galatians 6.1 where Paul tells those who are spiritual, those who are spiritually mature, he says those who are spiritual should restore the one caught in a trespass and sin. Now he's not talking, when he says caught in a trespass and sin, he's not talking about somebody who was, was discovered like you turn on the computer one day and you find out all kinds of things that you didn't want to know about some person that you thought loved you. He's not talking about that kind of uncovering. He's talking about the person who is ensnared. They're in a pattern. They're caught like an animal in some trap. They, they got this way not overnight. They got this way by, first of all, indulging in some temptation... And then when their conscience bothered them, they suppressed their conscience or, or in order to soothe their conscience, they pursued more sin, which only led to more guilt and more shame and perhaps more sin until eventually they reach a point where they begin to deaden their conscience. They begin to subdue their conscience so much that the sin expands, but the guilt doesn't. They wind up finding themselves in a pattern 
a chain of sinful behavior that began with a thought, then an action, and then a pattern. Eventually, the heart becomes cold and obstinate towards instruction under God's Word. There's no appetite to read God's Word. There's no appetite to hear it preached on Sunday morning. You come, you're distracted, you're uninterested, you have no worship of the Lord in your heart anymore. And you certainly aren't receptive to the loving admonition of brothers and sisters. You go and talk to this person and you plead with them that they're in a trap. They're ensnared. Now when Galatians tells you to do this, it's very specific. You go looking unto yourself, he says. You go looking unto yourself. That's, that's directly out of our Lord's teaching, right? How can you deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye unless you first deal with the log in your own? In other words, there's always a first step in, in confrontation. There's always self-examination. It's always humbling yourself and recognizing your own sinfulness. You go looking unto yourself, and as a result of that, you go, as Galatians 6.1 says, with a spirit of gentleness. In other words... You're not going to the person and say, how could you be so dumb? How could you be so stupid? Don't you understand that you're hurting other people? That's not the spirit you go with. You don't go saying, you know, you're a real loser. No, you say, I'm a loser. I understand sin because I struggle with it myself. I've been in the battle. I fought the fight. I faced the failures. I can understand what you're feeling because I've been there. That's how you go. You go, you begin there, you plead, you appeal, you, you cry, you weep, you pray. You do all of those things out of love for them and out of love for the Savior because you understand the dire consequences of their life. This is where discipline begins. Unfortunately, though, sometimes it's too late. Sometimes the person is so hard in their heart, they won't turn. They won't listen. They won't respond to the appeal. And at that point, the scripture is very clear. You must escalate. You must involve other people. If after repeated attempts after prolonged patience and prayer, after all of those things and gentleness and patience, if someone won't listen, you have to take two or three others. If you won't listen to them, you bring it before the assembled church. It's clear. It's almost so clear you wonder why people wouldn't obey the Lord. You wonder why they wouldn't. And you understand, certainly in today's society, why some churches don't because they're all about appealing to as many people as they can and appearing as attractive to the world as they can. And when they do that, the first thing that's jettisoned is accountability, is confrontation. But for those who claim Christ as Lord, His command is clear. And obedience should be unquestioned. In fact, in verse 2, Paul confronts this church. If he has any harsh words here, it's not for the sinner, it's for the church. He says, you are arrogant. You're arrogant. Who, 
Who do you think you are just running the church however you think it ought to be ran? As if somehow it's your church and it's not the Lord's church, as if somehow you make the rules and He doesn't make the rules. Who do you think you are? You're arrogant, He says. Ought not rather you to have mourned over this? He uses a word there for mourning that's actually used in reference to people losing a loved one in death. He says, you should have been cast down in grief over what's taking place in your midst. They were arrogant, not only because they were trying to run the church the way they wanted to run it, they were arrogant more to the point because they were under the impression that they could tolerate this kind of sin to, in the life of the person sitting down the, the row from them and not themselves be impacted. They had this individualistic view, perhaps, of their spirituality where they believed that what someone else did on the other end of the pew made no impact on them. That's arrogant. In fact, look at verse 6. Paul says it this way. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Do you think that you can continue to attend that church where that's tolerated and those kinds of sins are put up with and you not be affected in your spiritual life? Do you really believe that? You're arrogant, he says. You've become proud, self-sufficient, and you yourself are obstinate before the Lord. The time had come to deal with sin. The painful process had to take place like a, like a surgeon's scalpel, the tumorous tissue needed to be extracted. And so after pointing out for them this sin which glaringly should have been dealt with, Paul issues an exhortation which really gives us our second truth, our second principle here, and that's the authority that discipline claims. The authority that discipline claims. I mean, it's inevitable any time that you engage in this, someone is going to ask you, who do you think you are? High and mighty? Self-righteous and pious? Where do you think, uh, who do you think gave you the right to nose into my business? You've got sins of your own, right? All those questions will arise. The realities of those are true. We do have sins of our own. We are not perfect. All of us are in a process of sanctification and growth. It makes this obedience to the Lord, one of the most difficult things that you'll ever do. That's why Jesus, anticipating all of this, reserved for this process some of the most sobering declarations that you'll find anywhere in Scripture of His authority and approval. In fact, look with me back over at Matthew 18. Look with me at Matthew 18. You'll see what we've already read in verses 15 through 17. In verse 17, he ends by telling them to put the sinner out of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, and immediately he adds an addendum to everything that he said. 
Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now those, unfortunately, are familiar verses for all the wrong reasons. Because people have taken those verses out of the context of confrontation and have, have foisted them on the church as some sort of blank check that if you can get some other Christian to mouth the same words of your prayer or to agree somehow in their heart in some need that you have, that you have bound God in some sort of obligatory relationship to give you whatever you want. In other words, you've made God obligated to listen to you. Listen, this isn't about God listening to you. This is about you listening to God. All of this is said in order to give you the confidence and the boldness to follow the Lord and what He's teaching. These are all statements about authority. These are all statements about approval. And what the Lord is saying here is if you follow through in His process, if you do everything as He's commanded you to do in verses 15 and 16 and 17, if you go about this the right way, He says, then truly that whatever you bind on earth, whatever action you take here on earth, He says, it is approved, it is bound in heaven. Those people that you bind out of the church are bound out of the church in heaven. Those people that you loose to return to the church are loosed by God in heaven. That is sobering. You won't find that kind of statement of authority anywhere else in Scripture. He says there in verse 20, if two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am. He's not talking about He's not talking about two or three people gathered together in a living room and having confidence that somehow God is present. Listen, God's present everywhere. It doesn't matter if you gather with two or with none. He's there. You gathering or not gathering does not in any way affect the omnipresence of God. He's not talking about His presence. He's talking about His authority. And what He's saying is, if you gather together, the, you, you recognize in verse 20 the phrase two or three, right? Where does that come from? That comes from verses 15, 16, and 17. You've gone through the process. You've gone through the confrontation. Two or three people have been involved in order to confirm the testimony. And now he says, when those people gather together, if they have acted in my name, in other words, if they've done everything according to my will and for my glory and obedience to me, he says, it's as if I'm standing there with you in terms of authority. In terms of authority. Folks, our Lord had to say this. He had to say this. 
Because without this kind of stamp of authority and approval, we would all shrink back from the task. I mean, every one of us would get into this process and we would just be bundled over in shame over our own sin. We would recognize that we don't have any kind of standing. We don't have any kind of position in ourselves. It doesn't matter for someone in the pew or someone in the pulpit. We don't have any kind of position in ourselves to be bringing judgment against anyone. The only way we could ever do it is if we had His authority to do it. You understand? And that's exactly what He's lending to the church. His authority. His pronouncement. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can understand now what Paul's saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says it here in verse 3. Though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan. You recognize already, hopefully, some of the terminology here. When you're assembled in the name of Jesus, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, when you gather together, assemble as a congregation, he's not writing this to a couple of elders, a couple of pastors. This is a book written to the church. This is a corporate event. When you have your public gathering, not some administrative task that you carry out on the books of your church in midweek. This is a public statement. He says, when you're doing this, and my spirit together with you, he's with apostolic authority, lending his authority to this, just like the Lord Jesus himself said, I'm there in your midst. Paul sort of taking that same role. I'm not there in body, but I'm there in spirit. In other words, he is affirming this action, even though he couldn't physically be present. At your public gathered assembly, he says, gathering in the name of the Lord, gathering for the purpose of the Lord, gathering because you're obedient to the Lord. All the processes have been followed. All the motivation has been for God's glory, for God's name. You've gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he adds there in verse 4, and with the power of the Lord Jesus. Dunamis is the word that can sometimes be translated power, but sometimes is even translated authority. The authority of the Lord. That makes this a very serious and sobering process. You understand, as you read Matthew 18, how rare the statements of authority there are. And so as you enter in this process, you enter with such circumspection, such sobriety, such self-examination, such seriousness. But you gather together 
and it's a corporate event, you tell it to the church. You tell what has been, at this point, behind closed doors. The work of one, the work of two or three, but now having confirmed it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand in the authority of the Lord. And you make the pronouncement. This is not something entered into lightly because it's not something that the Lord threw His authority behind lightly. It's not a process that's rushed, convoluted. It's not a process that is to be a knee-jerk reaction. Every fact, Matthew 18 says, is to be confirmed. Every issue dealt with gently. Every step taken in the name of the Lord. So that you understand that when it reaches this point, when it finally comes forth, it is the end of a careful, considerate, humble and just as importantly, obedient process. We don't stand in our own name. We don't stand with our own agenda. We don't stand because of personal offense or personal hurt. We don't do anything out of any of those small motivations. Everything we do, we do because the Lord has commanded us to. Who are we to do such work? Who gives us the right to call out someone else's sin? Well, our Lord does. Our Lord does. And if we don't, it's only because of our own arrogance. It's only because our own hearts have become obstinate to obeying the Lord's command for His church. Well, Paul isn't done just helping us see the offense that discipline targets and the authority that it claims. There are purposes, there are benefits, there are boundaries even in what God's called us to do. But we'll have to save those for next week. Some of you maybe are visiting today and you're not a part of the church. Maybe you have stayed away from the church because you've seen the hypocrisy. I want to tell you that's not God's design. Those who claim the name of Christ and don't walk according to Christ have no business calling themselves Christian. But don't let the hypocrisy of some person or even the hypocrisy that you've associated with some church keep you from recognizing that you'll stand before God one day and He will judge you according to your works. And if you have sin. And you certainly do. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You'll be cast into eternal judgment by God Himself. There's forgiveness though. Our Savior Jesus Christ gave Himself on the cross so that He could completely wipe away every sin. Not only that, your life will be changed. Jesus says that you'll be born again all the guilt and the shame that you bear in your conscience is completely eradicated 
and you're given a heart that follows Christ. That's our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here somehow thinking that the church is just a place of hypocrites. It ought to be a place of redeemed souls, transformed souls, people who have a Lord and Savior and their lives reflect it. The Lord calls you to be one of His own. We challenge you to respond this morning. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I ask you to stand together with me. When we're done, if you'd like to hear how you can have the forgiveness of your sins, I encourage you, find me after the service. I'd love to pray with you and let you know the testimony of the gospel. Father, we're grateful this morning that your word is clear, that you haven't left us to be mired in gossip and mired in the difficulties of hypocritical lives all around us. You've given us clear processes, but Lord, we know it begins with us. I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves, that we not be one of those hypocrites. But Lord, as, as we do that, make us faithful even to your command. Make us a church that obeys you. Make us a people who aren't arrogant, but who humble ourselves before you. Do it, Lord, by the working of your Spirit. Make us a place that magnifies you and your gospel in every way as we ought. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.